Well, it's great to be here, and I know it's ironic that on the very topic of envy, um, you should hear that I'm from Rudy Hill, and this very moment your hearts are filled with that very curse, cursed by the fact that you can't be where I live. I'm sorry about that, but this sermon is a very appropriate one. You get that I'm joking, right? Yeah, okay. We're looking at envy. Envy, um, someone defined it as the art of counting other people's blessings instead of your own. Envy is not quite coveting. The Tenth Commandment says, uh, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, goods, ass, even his nice booty. Nope. I've got mine. Thank you very much. Envy is not just about resent. It's about not just coveting and laying a claim. It's actually about resenting the person who has those things. And it's, uh, it's quite personal and has a mean streak to it. Uh, and it can cut both ways. It can, it, it can generate what some people call schadenfreude, that German word that means malicious joy, where you can find yourself taking pleasure at the suffering of others when they lose the things that you covet. But more often it generates a grief when you feel others succeeding in the very things that matter to you or that you've missed out on. Gore Vidal, an essayist, an American writer, said, whenever a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies. Do you know that feeling? So who is it for you? Who was it for you? Who will it be for you? Whose success kind of tears you up from the inside? To be fair, Psalm 73 is more than just a discussion on envy. Um, It really kind of pushes the step, or rather pushes you one step further, where we begin to resent the God who blesses those who curse him and for him to give to those who reject him rather than giving those same blessings to those who love him. Asaph is the author of this psalm. He's written 11 other psalms. He's the choir leader of Israel, so I guess in your context he would be your music uh, director, Dave. And you can imagine Dave coming up and giving a story about, because this is really a testimony, this psalm. I don't know if you realize that it's, he's coming before Israel, the people of God, and he's talking about how he nearly lost his faith in God. And it begins with a critical statement of faith that the whole psalm hinges on, the very thing he almost gave up on. Verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So the whole psalm pivots on this important truth. Uh, And the point is that the declaration is that God is good. God is intrinsically good. God is nothing but good. And that God in his plans is committed to the good and the welfare of his people who love him. This is the God who created the universe out of nothing and blessed that universe. This is the God who stamped us, that unique species of Homo sapiens sapiens, with his precious image. This is the God who outmatched every one of our sins with more grace. This is the God who entered into a covenant of love with Abraham and the children of Abraham with that stubborn covenantal love that will not let go of his people where his mercies are new every morning. This is the God who did not even withhold his one and only son but gave us his best when we were at our worst. Oh yeah, God is good and he's good to his people. The The record shows it. You lose that truth or you lose God himself. But our personal experience can often feel the very opposite to that truth, that God is not good, and he almost seems to prefer those who reject him. 
So Asaph's story begins in verse 2, almost with a sigh of relief. You can almost see him wiping the sweat of his brow. In verse 2, but as for me, he says, okay, that may be true, God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped, I had nearly lost my foothold. I came that close to the worst possible disaster a Christian can have, and that is, or a believer can have. I came, I almost lost my confidence that God was for me. I don't know if you realize that is the worst disaster that can fall upon any child of God. It's worse, dare I say, than losing your child or losing your spouse. Lose that, you lose everything. Have you ever had one of those near misses in a car where you nearly died? I remember coming up from Kayama one day where my in-laws live and uh, my wife and I, were, I was in the front seat, uh, I was driving with my wife and there, I took the wrong turn, to, I took the right turn too late and found myself on that sort of medium strip that kind of, like a, a train on a track, I couldn't force the car out of and I was heading for a concrete slab, it wasn't looking good. Felt like eternity but it was only about three seconds I think until I finally jimmied the car out and then was back on the right track. And you know that awkward silence that, whoa, we nearly came very close to dying. Well, that's the sense at which Asaph is here at this point, a real sense that he'd almost abandoned the God who he thought had abandoned him. Let's see why, in verses 3 to 9. Why did he almost give up his confidence in the goodness of God? Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from, they are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. His attention had completely focused on the success of those who stood against God and defied him. He envied everything that displeased God. Their defiance paradoxically seemed to attract pleasure rather than pain. They seemed to cruise through life without hope and without God. It was health, wealth and contentment that followed them all the days of their life. And they stood in a counter-relationship with God. And so defiant that uh, they, they articulate kind of boastful sniggerings. Look at verse 11. They say, so there's a real boastfulness, how can God know? He's thick. Does the Most High know anything? Everything inside of Asaph is saying, it's not fair, and why am I bothering? Now, maybe you can resonate with that. I certainly talked to someone from the morning service who was just kind of past that point. You live in this same world because suffering and blessings aren't kind of just, you know, handed out in an even manner or even in a manner that you could almost work. I remember my sister working for a... Um, Long hours for a small travel company that was about to go under. And she and a, couple of the, a number of the other workers went on half pay, worked long hours for many months to keep the company afloat. Really loyal to the boss. Unbeknownst to them, after about six months, eight months, the boss had been quietly embezzling the money, putting it into account in the States where he eventually left, leaving them all behind uh, uh, with uh, wages owing. 
You think, why do you bother? And what makes it worse in verse 10 is that people seem to find no fault with them. The guy who knocks off material from work, he gets the promotion. The person who's willing to lie for the boss gets to keep the job. The one who walks away not simply from some mats, but from Jesus himself, seems to find the lover, gets promoted in the job, and ends up with three very beautiful, healthy, happy, contented children, and you're left behind in a difficult marriage or perhaps battling with infertility. And you're telling me God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart? I don't think so. Well, that's what Asaph's thinking. So obsessed with how things have turned out, he begins to think that following this God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a complete, total, and utter waste of time. And he tells us in verse 13, those very words, Surely in vain, waste of time, I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. And and he's right, you know, because if God is not good to his own, there's no point in being faithful to him. Asaph is like a a blind man groping in the dark. He's lost any sense of the fact that God is good and has demonstrated that goodness throughout the history of Israel. Now, it's worth saying, and you've got to say it, that anyone can look good from a distance. And it's the nature of envy that does distort reality and does tend to Photoshop the very people you uh, envy. Up close and personal, let's face it, there's chinks in everyone's armour, right? I mean, dear old James Packer will be the first to say, and we thank him for saying it, you know, not not what happened to him, but he'll say, business is really going well, but my personal life is a disaster. I mean... I'm not thankful that his life is a personal life is a disaster, but I love the fact that he's at least he's honest enough to admit that it's not roses. No, no, the psalmist is like that character in a Bob Dylan song. Any Bob Dylan fans out there? Right. Actually, there were a lot more hands at the eight o'clock service, which probably tells you how old Bob Dylan and I are. Anyway, there's a line in the song that goes like this. I promise not to sing it. It's all right. Now, he's hell-bent for destruction, he's afraid and confused, and his brain has been mismanaged with great skill. All he believes are his eyes, and his eyes, they just tell him lies. I think that's Asaph right here. All he believes are his eyes, and his eyes, they just tell him lies. That what he knows about God and what he's experiencing in his world do not seem to line up. And that kind of dissonance is killing him. It's certainly killing his faith. Because if all you believe are your eyes... I'll tell you, they will tell you lies. And then you get, by, by verse 16, Asaph has kind of plum-tuckered out. He's been arm-wrestling God for who knows how long. And he gets to that point where he kind of gives up and gives in. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their destiny. The psalmist, Asaph, here, you see, he's trying to understand the whole issue without reference to God and God's purposes. He sort of closed his Bible and had his worldview shaped simply by what he sees. Uh, the, the point of reference here is the sanctuary, the, the temple of God, the holy of holies, that, that place that symbolized the presence of God and the word of God. And at that point where he enters into that sanctuary, Spurgeon beautifully says, his mind entered into eternity where God dwells. He took a step back. He saw the big picture. It's as though, you know, he's kind of in this obsessive, claustrophobic, envious bubble. 
And then the periscope goes up and he gets to see the big picture, look beyond the immediate horizon and sees a very different world. Years ago I went, and I mean by years, I mean decades, decades ago, I visited the Australian National Gallery, Art Gallery. And uh, in the entrance, or from memory, towards the front in the gallery, there was this massive Picasso. It was like three and a half metres by, what is it? 7.8 metres. It was a massive painting. And it's as though Asaph's like three centimetres from the canvas saying, man, this does not make sense to me. And he's kind of exasperated because he's up close, too close. And then he takes a step back and another step until finally he gets the whole canvas in view. Then the penny drops. Now I get it. Which, of course, doesn't work for a Picasso, as you know. From whichever angle, it doesn't seem to make sense. But, hey, that's me. I'm a peasant, so what do I know? Asaph now begins to see the big picture. He's taken the step back. He's, entered it. He's taken the periscope up. He gets to see God's big plan. And there are kind of shafts of insight here. The first one is that it's not over till it's over, eh? For those who he envied, we discover what, their dest- what the destiny is for them that awaits them. Verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. It's interesting, he's so obsessed on their present success, he forgot their final destiny and their future failure, that there was a judgment day coming and a day of reckoning. You, you can envy a human being who seems to have it all, defying God or not, but you will never envy a person when it's clear to you They're tragically heading for a day where they will hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. That's one person you never want to envy. The psalmist pictured life for those outside of Christ and that's how it translates for us. He was kind of stuck on seeing their world like a still photo. You might get on Facebook, you know, you get the party scene, looks really good, yeah, I wish I was there rather than a, a motion picture, a video, that kind of tells you where that story ends out. You look at the picture, there's five guys hanging together, having a great time with a beer in their hand. You don't, you know, the picture doesn't tell you that later that night, one of them's going to be in a car accident, the other one's going to be vomiting in the toilet, the other one's going to be kissing someone that they shouldn't be kissing, and the next day have to go and explain it to the girlfriend. All you get is a picture, and a picture will tell you a thousand words, they'll just tell you the wrong words. What we've got to keep training ourselves is to understand that life is not a still photo. It's an unfolding video with a tragic ending if you're outside of Christ. And can I say, if you've not yet entered into a relationship with Christ, I really plead with you, take up the call to investigate who Jesus is because he's come to give you life. He is good and he is good to those who want him, but it's on his terms. And that course that was advertised, I really plead with you to go. I'm not part of this church, so I've got no agenda other than to say, you will meet Jesus in all his glory in that, in that course. Well, for those outside of Christ are not to be envied, they're to be pitied. He forgot that God's time was not, at As- was not Asaph's timing, that God's justice was not at Asaph's beck and call. You know, you fix your eyes on the one thing, and when the one thing is the wrong thing, you will get in trouble every time. I'll tell you a little silly example of that. Many years ago, uh, in the early 80s, I was working as a counsellor in Anglicare down at Wollongong and I lived up in Ferry Meadow, which is a suburb of two north, and I'd cycle home 
And uh, on the way, I had to cross over a railway line. And the, on this particular day, the, uh, the, the gates were down and the cars had sort of formed uh, along the road waiting for the gates to go up. And I cycled past the cars, went past one car. It was a bomby old car with P-plates and uh, a couple of 17-year-old girls. And they shouted out to embarrass me, sexy legs, sexy legs. Now, if you know my legs, they look like tree trunks. There's nothing sexy about them. They, they were stirring me. Anyway, I, I tried and I sort of smiled and moved on. Actually, I didn't even look at them. I just was embarrassed and hoped it would just go away. So I cycled to the front of the line. Then the gates went up. The, I went over the railway line. The, the cars went past. And, and, uh, and I could hear from a distance, sexy legs, sexy legs. I thought, these girls are unrelenting. Uh, and it was just getting louder and louder. I'm getting more and more embarrassed. You know, I think, oh, man. And then I thought, I'll just keep my cool smile and then keep you know, when they get alongside. So they eventually caught up with me, at which point I turned, and I noticed at the very point I laid eyes on the girl who was driving, half of her torso was actually out of the car, bellowing out, sexy legs. She was really intent on humiliating me, humiliating me. And then at the point where our eyes met, her car slammed into the Tarago, the Tarago in front of her slammed into the Volvo, and I'm cycling past thinking, this is weird. Keep your eyes on the one thing. When it's the wrong thing, it'll get you into trouble. And that's exactly what Asaph was doing, obsessed about the wicked's prosperity and forgetting their destiny. The second thing you see, the second insight is he just has an honest look at himself. He kind of wakes up, finally wakes up to himself and gives himself a good talking to. Verse 21, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I love biblical Christianity. It's like the prodigal son who comes to his senses. No more playing around. No finding nice words for a dark reality. He sees things as they are. He says, Lord, I was just stupid. I was senseless like an untamed man. I was like a bull in a china shop. I was thrashing and I was thrashing against you. You ever been so embittered, so resentful, with some wrong, all your thoughts go back to that one issue, driving, walking, conversing with whoever, and you just your head's just locked in on that person. Bitterness had clouded, it clouded his thinking. He was prepared to admit it. Starts there, doesn't it? Third shaft of light and insight. God never let him go through the whole story. Because really the most astounding thing in this psalm, I think, is that even though Asaph had pretty much envied everything that broke the heart of God, there's a God on the receiving end of this behavior, as there is on yours and mine. And even though he was like a, a beast before God, sulking, filled with his self-righteous sails, God showed him to be true. Tr sorry, God showed Asaph he was good and good to him by staying right by his side. Verse 23, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. It's kind of like God is the father who's holding on to the hands of a rebellious child, throwing a temper tantrum on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> and he will not let go. And Asaph, resentful as he was, finally wakes up to himself and sees the cliff and sees his father holding on to him and letting him go, not letting him go, even though Asaph was pulling hard against him. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. He's seeing God. He first understood where they're ending up. Now he's going to see where he will end up. This is the fourth shaft of light. Verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. It's kind of one of the few explicit references of the resurrection in the Old Testament. And, and you notice there's not really a hint of disappointment as to his own destiny. He knows that God will usher him into the new creation with a resurrected body. He may not know all the details in the, in the way we do who live after the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he knows there lies an age beyond the present one where there will be no regrets, where there will be nothing to envy because you will, he and we will be co-heirs with Christ. And, uh, and when he steps into that reality, he won't be entering into glory, looking around thinking, gee, I really thought it'd be better than this. That won't be one of the things he'll be battling with. See, God is saying to Asaph, and he's saying to you this morning, I know it's tough, but remember, remember where they're going to end up and pray for them, don't envy them. And remember where you're going to end up, a new creation where there's no more crying or grief or pain. So I want you to hang in and hang in well with joy. Because from the lips of the man who almost walked away from God comes one of the greatest statements of faith. Verse 25. I love this verse. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Do you get that? Do you get the the profundity of that truth, the singularity of, of, of clarity. God is enough. That is about the most liberating statement. That was so good. I wrote a book on this on 11 Psalms. This was one of them. I titled the book, God is Enough, because of this verse. I was so enamored by it. It is the, it is the thing that will liberate you from envy and every other sin. God, it is the key to contentment. God is enough. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? What a radical statement from the man who almost walked away from this God. He is all that I ultimately need. Uh, there was a guy in my church, uh, there's a guy in my church, Sarkis. He, uh, uh, last year his son broke his neck in a motorbike accident, and, um, and C1, C2 got cracked and uh, he's actually walking now. He's a, kind of a, a real miracle. But, but for about six months, he was in ICU in, in, uh, in Westmead uh, Children's Hospital. And um, his whole life focused on his son's welfare. And he said, like, everything got stripped away. And he said, he really kind of got, at that point, God is everything and God is enough. Whether his son got healed or not, he, he just came to a clarity moment. He said, Ray, I used to hate leaving the hospital because I just get distracted with business ventures and this and that. He said, but when I was in the zone, he was in the zone. And he could say these words and mean it. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You are my everything. Oh, it doesn't mean you don't delight in and celebrate and enjoy the spouse, the friends, the church, the creation, the nice meal, the great cappuccino. And you've got some great coffee, coffee shops here, by the way. You know, it's not anti that. It's, it's, a, it's a not anti this world. But Jonathan Edwards kind of puts it right. 
It's about perspective. This is how he puts it. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. They are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. They are but streams, but God is the fountain. They are but drops, but God is the ocean. Asaph has finally gotten there, at least for now, because you've got to fight to stay there, don't you? He realizes he doesn't need a payoff in this age. You know why? Because he's finally understood God is the payoff. He's understood that God is not just a means to an end. He is the end. You know, with all the furniture of the new creation, the great wonder is that you get to see God face to face. And as a result, verse 28, but as for me, it's good to be near God, this God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, you know, the, what completes our joy, whenever, whatever it is, whether it's a sporting event, a piece of art, or the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, what completes our joy is in the telling of others. And he ends with, I will tell of all your deeds. God is enough. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Can you, can you cover that? Do you want that? Do you want that? Do you get it? Why don't we beg God that this will be our constant desire? Because you've got to fight to stay here. Because there are so many distractions, so many good things stealing you from the best. Oh, how many days have I wasted? How many other things have stolen by best moments with this God who is my everything? What did John Piper say? Facebook, the final argument from God that we always did have enough time to pray. Can I just ask you this day, this day, just today, will you do this? Memorize this verse. Go to a tattooist and get it tattooed on your arm. Maybe not. But get this verse in your head and in your heart. The very act of saying it is itself breathtaking. And almost you'll say it before you'll mean it, but that's all right. Just let your heart catch up with your confession. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. I had a 100-year-old, a 99-year-old man after 8 o'clock service in the back with tears in his eyes saying, I'm, I'm going to be 100 next year, Ray. I really believe that. That's where I want to be when I'm, God willing, 99. Let's pause. I'm going to give you a moment's time to reflect. And then I'm going to beg and plead and tug on God's hem that this will be true for us. Good idea?
Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here at St. Matt's, wherever we are on that spectrum of wanting this to be true, the best part of us wants this. And we beg and we plead and we cry out and we ask and we tug at the hem of your garment and say, Dad, please, in a world that has so many good things pulling us in a thousand different directions, we want this confession of Asaph to fall off our lips and mean it. Whom have we in heaven but you? And earth has nothing we desire besides you. And we pray this to your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen.